Her name is Kelsey McKinney, and I have never met her. She sounds like a nice, intelligent, well-educated young lady. But her words broke my heart a few months ago. She's written a book called God Spare the Girls, and there's a lot you could read from that title. I certainly don't find it abrasive or uh, controversial, but the book is a novel about two young girls caught up in evangelical Christianity among a scandal involving their father who was a megachurch pastor. She wrote the book because she has deconstructed her faith and decided that she no longer believes in the Lord Jesus. She is a part of a growing group of individuals, probably around my age or younger. I'll be 44 in two months. About my age or younger, known as exvangelicals. In fact, this is the label on the podcast. There's a podcast called Exvangelical, and it's hosted of course, by an author who interviews people who are leaving the faith of Christianity, more specifically the evangelical faith. Now, I realize that the word evangelical, like any word in our culture, can have different meanings to different people, but the basis for evangelical Christianity are some tenets that you would amen, that you would affirm if you are a part of Church at the Mill, or if you are like-minded in your faith, and perhaps you're looking for a church, whether you're watching online or here with us live. Things like this, the Bible is God's word, and it holds authority. It is true and good. Jesus said that he was the one who came to bring life and life eternal. Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again, ascended into heaven, and one day he will return. And before his return in heaven today, he is seated on the throne, preparing a place for us, waiting on the word of the Father. And as we just sang a few moments ago and pulled back the curtain on heaven, he's worthy of it all. And Jesus said, if you want eternal life, you must be born again. You must be saved. You must confess your need for salvation and thrust yourself at the mercy of God. But in his kindness, he will not shun you nor reject you. He will extend his mercy to anyone who would believe, regardless of your background, your mistakes, your struggles, the color of your skin, the culture of your origin. None of those things matter. God looks at the heart of a woman and the heart of a man. And any person who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is what the Bible said. Church, can you amen those beliefs? Those are evangelical beliefs. In fact, the word evangelical in the English comes from the word in the original language of the New Testament, the Koine Greek, euangelion, the gospel, the good news. And there's a group of people who have grown up in the church that are now walking away from that. I take no issue with them. I'm not angry at anybody. I don't stand this morning to bring them in front of you and attack or criticize them. They're not even my job. My job is you, to shepherd you, and to encourage you. But when I listened to this young woman talk about her journey, she said some things that my daughter would say. She said she enjoyed the churches she grew up in. She said it was fun to play at the church when dad was working. She said she knew and met many loving people at the church, 
But then later in her life, she began to question everything. And certainly there are people in the name of Christianity who have done some terribly wicked and evil things. And yes, leaders, leaders in the church should be held to a high standard And I hope and pray you know that we do our very best to do that here at Church at the Mill. But no one should ever place their faith in a leader, in a position, in a denomination, in a platform, in a pulpit. We place our faith in the one who's worthy of it all. And as she articulated her ability to walk away from everything that I hold dear and everything that many of you have built your life on, I couldn't help but think in my mind, what about our little girls? What, what about our sons? Today is the first day where our own campus adult small groups are kicking off. All small groups are kicking off this week, and so it's increased more traffic. There are people in the building right now in small group that will worship with us in the next hour. Some of you came from an 8 o'clock small group hour, so I took the opportunity because Chandler was doing the welcome this morning to walk down the preschool hall and to walk down the children's hall as you were beginning to sing a few moments ago. And I looked at not the tens and not the dozens, but the hundreds of little faces And I couldn't help but thinking about this sermon introduction because I see them like you see them, as precious and innocent and as something that we should treasure. And then I asked the question, what do we do as a church to put our children and students in the best possible position to make adulthood with a deep abiding faith in Jesus and a love for the Lord? This is the question I've been asking as I prepared to preach this message to you this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You want to find that, you can, and as you do, I don't want to confuse you, you can find Deuteronomy chapter 6 because I think we're at a judge's moment. As you're turning to Deuteronomy chapter 6, I want to show you on the screen only Judges chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. This is the chapter where the mantle is being passed from Joshua to the next leaders of Israel. You know the story of Moses leading the children of God out of the promised land, receiving the law of God on Mount Sinai leading them through the wilderness, handing the mantle of authority off to Joshua. Joshua and Caleb and other faithful men led the nation of Hebrews into the promised land, and there God established them and grew before them a people. And this is what Judges chapter 2, verses 7 through 10 says in my Bible. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Now look what it says. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That means all of Joshua's peers died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. A generation of not perfect people, but faithful people died. And when that generation died, 
The Bible says in the book of Judges, chapter 2, verse 10, there arose a generation who did not know the Lord. I don't know if you've looked around, but we are at a Judges, chapter 2, verse 10 moment as a nation. We have a generation of children, and I'm not speaking of children not raised in the faith. Again, I have no issue with those who don't follow the Lord other than I want to share the gospel with them. The Bible says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I'm not an angry pastor this morning, but I am deeply convicted and moved by this message. We have a generation of children raised in the church who are walking away at a statistically alarming status who knew of the Lord but do not know the Lord. And we come this morning to the fourth and final sermon in this sermon series, This Is Us. We took four weeks to really ask and answer a question. What makes us us? What are the defining activities that happen on a weekly basis that really are the ingredients to our casserole? First, we said what makes us us is Christ-centered exposition, the preaching of God's word. And then second, we talked about intentional relationships. And I'm here to tell you that based off that sermon and the incredible work of our staff and many of you in leadership, today we have more adults registered and beginning small groups in the next seven days than in the history of our church. We are so excited about that. If you see your small group leader, hug them and thank them for their commitment. Give God the glory for that. You can. 1,539 adults will start small group this week. Spirit-filled worship. You just did it. I about tore that curtain down listening and singing right next to you. The good news about the position I stand just before I preach is that I feel like I'm on the stage leading you, but you cannot see nor hear me. So you're getting the blessing and I'm getting the blessing. And then finally, what makes us us is loving and leading the next generation. I want to preach to you about our children. And you may say, well, pastor, I don't have children, but you're an aunt or an uncle. Pastor, I'm young. I've not married yet. I'd like to have children, but it will be in my future. It'll happen before you know it. I promise you. Pastor, I've raised my children, and now I'm watching my children raise their children, and God is getting even with my children because my grandchildren act like my children did. Here's the truth. Whether or not your family connections tie you close to the life of a child, and I hope that many of you do, if you are a true part of this family, if we are a family, and we use those terms biblically, we don't make them up. They're not warm and fuzzy. We use them biblically. If we truly are brothers and sisters in the Lord, then right down that hallway right now and over in the student center this morning are the children that God has given and blessed this church with. I would like to build this sermon off of two simple questions. One is theological and one is methodological. Theologically, what do we believe about children? 
Because if our behavior toward children is not driven by our belief about children, then our behavior will be short-lived. We, we will simply look at our ministries as programs to be executed. But understanding what we believe about children matters greatly. And then the second question is, based on what we believe, out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, what do we do for our children? I know that you as parents would say, I would do anything for my children. And I recognize that, and I have never shot away from preaching on parenting. We did a series just a few years ago called Spiritual Parenting. A few years before that, we did a series called Five. Those are all accessible on our church's resources that you can go and learn about God's call to the Christian parent. And I will confess to you that the Christian parent and the Christian home, whomever is in that home, whether it be a stepmother or a stepfather, a single mom, a single dad, a set of grandparents stepping in and lovingly raising children, Whomever is in that parental role, you have the primary task and the primary call and the primary role to raise children in the Lord, but your church should be home base for you. It should be a place that works alongside you, that equips you, that encourages you, and that brings into your children a multitude of opportunities to bear witness to that which you are grounding them in, in your home. What do we believe about our children, and what are we to do for our children? Very quickly, and we'll get to Deuteronomy 6 in just a moment, but let me give you just a biblical overview of a theology of children Number one, we believe children are a gift from God. There probably was a day when that would not have been controversial, but that day is no longer. We have a culture of death aimed at our children. Whether they die in the womb or they die on the street, children in America in many places are not flourishing. And we must begin, no matter what issue we view that children are involved in, we must begin with the understanding that children are a gift from God. And by that, we mean that children are a gift from God from the moment God uses his preordained miracle of conception to bring them into the world. Psalm 127 is the go-to verse that many of us cling to with this. In Psalm 127, the scripture says, Behold, I'm not putting the words into the Lord. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. So they are God's legacy, his heritage. They are a reward, a blessing, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. N notice the military term. See, God doesn't just see children as warm and fuzzy things to announce. He sees them as future members of his army to push back the darkness and to push forward the light. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. I've built my life on that verse. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So, so all throughout Scripture, and literally we could spend the next 30 minutes listing verse after verse after verse where children are never spoken of as a curse, as a burden, as something that is an afterthought or as something that should be welcomed into your life only when you are ready or it is convenient. They are always seen as a gift. Now, think about the contrast between this view and the views of our own culture. 
The great state of Texas passed a law just two weeks ago outlawing abortion after a heartbeat can be recognized, give or take, around six weeks of pregnancy. The leadership in Texas said, if you have a heartbeat, you ought to be able to live. I agree with that. Now, fascinating, the moment that comes out, the leader of our nation currently made this statement. He said, it unleashes unconstitutional chaos and empowers self-anointed enforcers to have devastating impacts. What? By, by, by letting babies live. Complete strangers will now be empowered to inject themselves in the most private and personal health decision. We have a president who is extraordinarily pro-abortion. But he didn't operate by this last week when he said he would appreciate a mandate on vaccinations. Do you see the irony in this? I'm not an anti-vax pastor. I'm not even preaching a message about vaccination. Many of you have taken the vaccination. I applaud you to make the decision that's best for your health. And I praise God for the gift of medicine and that God has given us. Many people have emailed me and asked me, and they're struggling with on all sides of the, on all sides of the issue. And I've reminded them that there are people in my life who love the Lord Jesus that got the vaccine the moment it became available. And there are people in my life who love the Lord Jesus that have some serious concerns about the vaccine, and there are people in my life, many of which probably I would resonate with, who are understanding that each family and each person should make the decisions that's best for them, but we are very weary and leery of a government beginning to mandate personal health choices, just like we've been in as a church. We want you to make the decision that's best for you, which is why we broadcast online, which is why we encourage you to wear a mask if you want to wear a mask, which is why we want you to choose to come and be with us live. And I've told you from day one, no matter what happens, I'm just going to be here and preach, and we'll let the Lord deal with us accordingly because we believe his word is essential. Now, when we begin to unpack this irony, though, we begin to see that life of the unborn and lives of children are no longer valued in our culture. But what does Psalm 127 say? I'll put it back on the screen. Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Why? Number two, not only are children a gift from God, children are fully capable of loving and honoring God. In fact, childlike faith is celebrated in the Scriptures. Kids come into this world with the desire to trust. Th think about it this way. You ever bumped into a seven-year-old atheist? No, no, no. You, you got to grow up and become conceited enough to be an atheist. I never have. All of our preschoolers this morning will tell you without a shadow of a doubt that there is a God, and those who've been encouraged and instructed well will tell you great truths about this great God. What does the scripture teach us about this? Well, just one simple verse I would share with you briefly is found in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 21. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw that the wonderful things that, that he did, talking about Jesus, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? They're quoting the children. Look what it says. And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? And Jesus quoted Psalms. 
Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. How many of you love that little one you call on to pray at dinner? And before the prayer ends, we're all laughing at the things that they pray for, the things that are on their mind. I've got one who's kind of chunky. He likes to eat. I call on him because he prays quick. I've got another one who, who's having his quiet time over there while I'm starving. I want to thank you for rainbows and sunsets and popsicles and mommy. Mommy gets a lot of mentions. Dad doesn't slide in very much, but mommy gets a lot of mentions. But it is a beautiful thing to see that God has wired children to trust, to believe, and to worship him. Which leads to the third of, of a very quick theology of children. Children were loved and blessed by Jesus. You realize that the gospel writers did not record every single activity, word, deed, or miracle of Jesus. John later said that if we wrote down everything that Jesus said or did, there wouldn't be enough room in the books of the whole world to capture it. And yet, on several occasions, under the inspiration of the Spirit, different gospel writers wrote about this account. It's in a book of Mark I'll show you this morning. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. They said, these children are a nuisance. They've gotten in the way. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. It's a tender moment, but the next verse is what ministers to me. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Don't miss what Jesus said. Jesus said, yes, I want children to grow and to be mature. Yes, it's important to discipline them. Paul contrasts, says, when I was a child, I felt like a child, but now that I'm a man, I think like a man. No, Jesus is not asking us to have a simple mind like a child the rest of our life. No, Jesus is not saying that we should remain immature emotionally or physically for the rest of our lives. No, it is a good thing for a little boy or a little girl to grow into the man or the woman that God has ordained them to be. But he is saying that tenderness toward me that desire to step up to the edge of the pool and jump into daddy's arms, knowing full well that child cannot swim. That childlike faith is how you enter the kingdom of God, which leads to the fourth and final truth of what we believe about children. They are our most important mission field. You can Google the studies. I, I like statistics, although 73% of them are made up on the spot. You can Google the studies if you want, but when you study men like George Barna and others who specifically talk to Christians, they will tell you the overwhelming majority of people walking around today who would say, I'm a born-again Christian. I believe in Jesus. I've been saved. I believe in the Bible. Made that decision before their 14th birthday. Now, I praise God that every week, adults come to Christ at Church of the Mill. I praise God for many of you who've come to faith in Jesus after a childhood where you were not taught or you were not ministered to or perhaps you got caught up in a movement but later you discerned that you truly had not repented and you came to Jesus. I praise God for those testimonies. But I also praise God for the fact that over the last three years at Church at the Mill, we've had 175 
eight, nine, and 10, 11 year olds go through our new believers class. 175. We've never had 175 people trust Christ on any of our mission trips. Doesn't mean we don't do mission trips. Doesn't mean we don't hold services. It doesn't mean we're not a part of evangelism. But the harvest is down that hallway. The harvest rode in the back seat with you this morning with Fruit Loops under their nose and a sippy cup that they spill and milk runs under your seat. And it's why you wouldn't sell your car to your worst enemy. The harvest, the harvest is right here. This is what we believe about children. So what do we do? What do we do with this? If you just listen to the first 15 minutes of this sermon and you're not feeling led to do something, then either I have failed or your heart is cold and hard. Whether you're brand new to Church at the Mill or you've been a part of this church since its inception, every one of us should say, if what my pastor has said is true and is biblical, I need to do something. What must we all do? And thus we come to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is one of those go-to chapters in relationship to faith, formation, and also really and truly the beginning of being a covenant people. So Christians, we believe we're the people of God. We don't believe we're the people of God arrogantly. We believe any person who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I shared that a few moments ago. And therefore, any of my brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever continent they may be on, whatever language they may speak, whatever their skin color may be, any person who comes to faith in Jesus is instantaneously a part of the kingdom, a part of the family of God, and therefore my brother or my sister in Christ. And that world of believers, and there are many, that world of believers has a unique set of characteristics and the precursor to our covenant with Christ is the old covenant God made with Moses. It began with Abraham, it was completed with Moses, and it was a covenant leading toward a Messiah. The establishment of covenant people, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament, teaches us about God desiring us to look different. This is why in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read these words beginning in verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. This is Moses talking to the Hebrews. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God and your son, and you and your son and your son's son. Notice Jesus through the Holy Spirit, the Lord communicating through Moses, no sooner had gotten out the sentence of this is what I want you to do that he follows that up with, I want you to do it in such a way that your sons and daughters do it and their sons and daughters do it. God always saw the building of his kingdom as something that is generational. Look what he says beginning in verse 3. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. And then we come to the Shema, or Shema. It's the Hebrew word for hear. This is quoted a lot if you go to a synagogue. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You know what that's called? The greatest commandment. 
Why do we call it the greatest commandment? It's not called the greatest commandment here. It's because Jesus would later affirm that it is off this commandment that the rest of the commandments are built. Matthew chapter 22, verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. What do we learn from the great and first commandment? Well, the basis of everything we just celebrated in worship. What does it mean to be right with God? Our relationship with God is built on believing him. I believe him. I don't just believe in him. I believe him when he says, any who will come unto me, come. I believe him when he says, I will rise again, because he did. I believe him when he says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will also come, that you may too go and be there with me. I believe him. And out of that belief, that life-changing faith, I'm given and you're given a new heart. We're born again. And one of the characteristics, the primary fruit of a right relationship with the Lord is that we love him. It's a love thing. That, that obedience is followed, but before you can obey, you must love. I've often used the analogy of parenting or marriage. I have a piece of paper that says I am Laurel's husband. I've never pulled that piece of paper out to remind me of that. I've never pulled that piece of paper out to remind me not to commit adultery. I've never pulled out that marriage certificate to remind me to make sure she gets our paycheck, which I earn and she deposits and Costco takes. I've never done that. The reason that she gets all of me and all my love and all my money and all my devotion is not because of a piece of a paper issued in Lee County Courthouse in Lee County, Alabama in the year 2000. That's not why. It's because I love her. Same with my children. There are laws against abusing children, abandoning children, hurting children, molesting children, starving children, torturing children. It breaks my heart every time I see one of those headlines. There are laws against those. I have never, ever had to read those laws. The reason I and many of you would never do that to our children or our grandchildren is because we love them. See, loving the Lord then leads to a desire to obey him. And the key, key sign, the telltale sign of a right woman with God and a right man with God is not their perfect track record, but when they do disobey, and we all do, their heart is broken. There's conviction. They know they have disappointed and grieved the Holy Spirit. They don't want to betray that love. So if this were not a sermon on children, I would say to you as the children of God, join me in making sure you believe him, you love him, and the belief you have and the love you hold is so rich that it bubbles up not just in what you sing on Sunday, not just in what you say on Monday, not just in what you tell on Tuesday, not just what you want on Wednesday, not just what you think about on Thursday, not just what you feel on Friday, but make sure that belief and that love bubbles up in your obedience. You have, as I often say to you, a forward lean to obey the king. I want to honor him. And when I don't, 
He won't leave me alone. He'll convict me. I'll be a miserable man. I've been there before where I had to stop my day, stop my meetings, stop my life, and go get with the Lord and make it right by asking for his forgiveness, confessing of my sin, repenting of it. And when I failed someone, go to them and say, I shouldn't have said that. I have these feelings against you. Would you forgive me? This is how revival starts. And guess what? From the tiniest infant brought on our campus, and I'm going to tell you, some of them get brought on here when they're wet. I mean, they are young. All the way to the oldest teenager in our high school ministry. Do you know what I want for them? This. They won't all stay at church at the mill. They're not all going to live here. Some of you are like, praise the Lord. They're going to go to the four corners of the world. But I want you and me to say we put our children in the best possible position to believe him, to love him, and to obey him. So how do you do that? Well, it's not for me to tell you. I'm still figuring it out. But look what God's word says. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Teach them. From time to time, I run into someone who will say, church was shoved down my throat. I grew up with a drug problem. I got drugged to church on Wednesdays, Sundays, Sunday nights, Tuesday night Bible study, Thursday nights. And so I've just decided I'm not going to force this on my children. I'm going to let them make a decision as to what they want to do. Does that work with your pediatrician? You let them decide when to go? How about the orthodontist? How about chemistry? You see... There are many decisions we make for our children because we're better suited. My children don't live in a democracy. It's a dictatorship. Me and mama are king and queen. We want their input, but only to the degree that their maturity is ready to make the decision. And here's why. I want them to be mature. Maturity comes through discipline and structure. comes through teaching them. Why have we lost that? In our faith. I cannot tell you that all of my children are raised in a pastor's home are going to grow up and be unbelievably faithful Christians. No man could stand before you and make that promise. I have friends in my life in ministry, and their number one prayer request to me every time I talk with them is to pray for an adult child who has walked away from the faith, an adult child who has strayed from the Lord. So we need to be real careful in giving parents a false assumption that if we do everything the scripture says, that that immediately means it's a quick pro quo and that our children don't become personally responsible for their own spiritual welfare. They are, we are not. But as much as it depends on us, we should teach them what the scriptures teach, which is why your teachers this morning, when you drop the children off, were printing and cutting out lessons. It's why we run programming for children. It's why it's not just nursery. We really work hard with an amazing team to make sure that we instruct our children in the Lord. And some of you have done that in the past and you've drifted away from it. Your children aged out, so you aged out. I'm here to tell you we need more people who are willing to teach our children the things 
of God. Number two, we don't just teach, though. We talk. Notice the difference here. He says, teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. There's a lot of application here for families and parenting. But for the church, I think what we can learn is that as we talk about the Lord, we should enjoy and encourage the presence of our children. It breaks my heart to see some churches disallowing children in the service. I want every child to be a part of every appropriate ministry that's available to them to the degree to which they can understand and to the degree to which they are not a distraction from those around them. From time to time, someone will come into this service and they'll bring a brand new baby and the baby will get a little upset and they'll have to walk out as I'm preaching. And I would just encourage you that if the baby doesn't calm down, do walk out as I'm preaching. But when the child walks out, people will say, was that distracting to you? And I always say, it never distracts me to know that that young mother got herself up, got herself ready, got that baby ready, and came with her Bible to try to learn from God's Word. I will never get tired of defending a church that sometimes has to deal with a cry or a squeal or heaven help us other sounds that sometimes children make in the service. They should be a part of the culture of where we are. Jesus people should be pro-children people. And I would just encourage you that while we offer programs and we want you to take advantage of them, the moment that your child is able to, I encourage you to bring them into our service. That's why we don't provide children's church past the third grade. We know there's some second and third graders that really struggle to sit still, and they just do better in that environment. But there are also kindergartners and first graders and second graders who sit in school all day quite well. You got the bumper sticker to prove that they are a wonderful child. Why don't you bring them and let them sit under the Word of God? And when we talk about the things of God around our children, they become casual in understanding that the Lord is just a part of our life, that it's not compartmentalized to a communion service or a baptism profession of faith, but that walking with the Lord is as much a part of our life as eating our supper or brushing our teeth or going to a ball game or loving on a grandmother. Third, we treasure God's word in front of them. Look at verse 8. The scripture says this. We're almost done. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. He's talking about the word, the statutes. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The idea that we treasure God's word around them. Mom, you got it going on. You really run the house. After this service, Google this. Baptist Catechism. Baptist Catechism. Look it up. Brand new book. Just came out. Order it. Eight, nine, ten bucks. Pick one night a week where you sit with your children around dinner and go through that with them. Teach them the word of God. Dad, help. Be a part of it. It's very simple. And it helps ground them in the faith. And finally, as I close, we testify. I want you to skip a little bit over to verse 20. 
The chapter continues to unfold a diligence toward the word of God. But look at verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come. So God says, there's going to come a day when your boy comes up and he says, why don't we do this? You know how children always ask why, right? One of the greatest prayer warriors in my young life when I was a little boy was Hattie Mae Crenshaw. If you can picture Hattie Mae Crenshaw, you probably got her. She had a Bible the size of this TV. She was a prayer warrior. If you visited the little church my daddy pastored and you were a guest, had a maze all up in your business. It's good to see you today. Where you been? We're glad to have you. You know, we meet on Wednesday nights too. Hattie Mae wanted people in church, but she loved Christ with all of her heart. Hattie Mae was a larger than normal woman. And one day in my youthfulness, I said, Miss Hattie Mae, why are your arms so fat? My mother almost sent me to meet Jesus. Hattie Mae said, Bit, that was my mother's name, Bit, you don't whip that boy. My arms are fat. He was just asking a question. She leaned over in my life on several occasions and she prayed, I'm praying that God would make you a preacher. I had no aspirations of being a preacher and never displayed any level of intelligence up to about 21 years old that would make you think you'd actually want me to tell you how to live your life. <laughs> Several years ago, I went back to that little church and I preached her funeral. And I shared that story of how she testified of God's goodness over my life. And often when I get discouraged, sometimes even when the building's empty, I'll, I'll walk down the children's hall. I think about all those little husbands we're raising, all those little wives, all those future little mamas and daddies, engineers, nurses, janitor workers, preachers, missionaries. I, I don't care how they earn a paycheck as long as they do God's will. It reminds me way back in Deuteronomy where God says, when your sons and your daughters ask, testify. Look what the passage says. What is the meaning of these testimonies and the statutes and the rules of the Lord our God? Then you shall say to your son, and listen to what he says to tell him. When we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household. Verse 23, and he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us a land that he swore to give our fathers. He says, brag on me. Tell them I saved you. Tell them when you were slaves, I delivered you. Tell them when you didn't have a land, I gave you a land. If I were to translate that, looking through the cross, tell your children I was lost and in my sin when I met Christ. Tell your children that Christ has done a work in your life. Tell your children that you don't just believe Christ because pastor preaches Christ. You believe Christ because you know what it's like to sleep at night knowing if you don't wake up, you'll wake up in the arms of a king who loved you and died for you. Testify to his goodness. I don't want my kids to just be brought to church. I want them to be in a church that when they become discouraged as a young man or a young woman and the world throws doubt darts at them, they can say, I may not know where I am right now. I'm a little shaky in my understanding of everything. I'm questioning everything around me, a journey that many of us go through. But those people I grew up with, my Sunday school teacher, my youth counselor, 
my pastor, my Wednesday night midweek volunteer that loved on me after she worked all day and pulled in on two wheels to get there in time. I remember this about them. I remember they loved the Lord God, that he was great in their life and that he worked mightily in their heart. And when I don't know what he's doing in my life, it is the faithfulness of the testimony of the people who formed me before I was a man that constantly serves as the foundation for me from which to go back and remind myself God is great. He is good. He does love us. He did come to die for us. He can and will save. He rules and he reigns and he's coming back. And until then, he's not silent. You want to hear him speak? Read your Bible out loud. It is his word. And he wants to speak to your life and to my life. Testify to our children. I began with the podcast. I'll end with one. I was listening to one about Joshua Harris, about the time I was beginning my college years. Joshua, who is a year or two older than me, wrote a book as a 20-year-old called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Kind of came out of the purity movement, True Love Waits, and the book's really asking people to re-look at dating among young people, which is an important subject. We could talk about it some other time if you'd like to. Buy me lunch. <laughs> but he writes this book, becomes a bestseller, fast track, becomes a mega church pastor. A few years back, he resigns from the ministry saying he's exhausted. And he's searching for himself. Then he begins to struggle with his faith. Then he announces that he and his wife, who have children together, are divorcing. Then he comes out with a tweet a couple years back. And this is what it said. Under, he's undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. This is called deconstructing. You can look it up. People deconstructing their faith. Can I just tell you it's really hard to deconstruct your faith when you grow up grounded in the goodness and the greatness of God? I'm not talking about dealing with doubts or fears. Every person in this room has dealt with that. I have. But as I listened recently to a podcast where a very gifted interviewer was interviewing him about his deconstruction, there was just one question that didn't get asked. He talked about the church and the failures of the church and the rise of the conservative right in America and all the politicalization and the social issues. I, I get all that. But he didn't ask him about this. What about Jesus? Can I tell you why my faith won't be deconstructed? I didn't construct it. I didn't build it. Christ saved me. Now, granted, I was raised in an environment that loved Jesus, and there were forms of religion around me, and I understand I'm influenced by my culture, but you can't rob me of the fact that I know where he met me 
And I know whom I have believed in. And I know he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him against that day. I know that. And I know that because of the weight of my sin, the only thing that was sufficient to take it away was the blood of Jesus. No one can deconstruct that. And that's what I want for every little girl on our campus this morning. And that's what I want for every little boy, which leads to one more question. What are you going to do for the children of our church? I bumped into them this morning. A few weeks back, we captured their testimony. Take a look at just two members who saw this question and chose to answer it. When we came to this church a few years ago, we asked to see where the biggest need for our church was in serving, and a few people mentioned that the preschool hall really needed some extra help, so we decided to start there, and we've honestly been here ever since. We believe in the message that the church puts out every week, and we want to do whatever we can to support that, and for us, it means serving on the preschool hall on Sunday mornings. Since it was a huge need, it opened the door as to the way that we viewed serving. Probably took me a couple of weeks, a lot of me trying to plan and figure out exactly what it was uh, that I could be best used. I think God really taught me through that time that obedience has very little to do with my plan and me wanting to be used perfectly. And it has much to do with the posture of my heart being open and willing to just do whatever God puts in front of me. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a glue stick. It is more than just serving the kid. It's serving the kid in a way to which their parents feel like this is a great thing for our family to come do together on Sundays. We're doing life together with the people that we're serving with, but also our kids are in the same stage of life. And it's so it's been great to have relationships with people, not only on Sundays, but throughout the rest of the week. Because of our involvement with the preschool ministry, I really feel like we have held on to the phrase of new beginnings and real relationships. Even if it wasn't something that we had pictured as the ideal situation, it was something that God has called us to do. God has really honored our commitment to serve by blessing us with relationships that I know we're gonna lean on for years to come. When I think about people like Clint and Jean, I think about the fact that I saw them this morning. They're down there working. We need your help. Today, I'm going to finish the 11 o'clock service. I'll stay on campus because I get to teach a new members class at three. I'll teach that from three to five. And then at six, we have dinner with them after they take a tour of the campus. And tonight at about 6.30, I'll leave there and I'll go with my wife because we're short tonight and she and I are gonna serve in the three-year-old classroom. Pray for her. Happy to serve. Many serve more than I can. But you would think with a church this large that people would join the pastor's wife and the pastor and others in helping. We don't want any of you to go down the children's hallway every time you come on our campus and become burned out because you never get the word and you never worship. But I'm tired of watching some of you cheer us on and never lift a hand to help. I've raised my kids, Pastor. Good. Then you got something to offer by loving on kids so that young parents can be in small group. Sunday mornings, Pastor, I love my small group. I love your preaching. I love the worship. Great. Why don't you come back on Sunday night for a couple of hours so that a young mother can go to small group and you take care of her children? I'm a man, Pastor. I don't know if I... 
our boys need men. There's a way for you to help. When you walk out these doors, I want you to walk out remembering this. Right now, just a statistic for you, right now at Church at the Mill, birth through fifth grade, we need 200 volunteers to make it happen every Sunday. We need 100 more to help us with Wednesday night and Sunday nights. That's 300. We're serving about 55 families who have children with special needs right now. That ministry has exploded. We're doing it with 28 volunteers. That number needs to double yesterday. We don't throw anybody into the wolves without training them. We're not interested in you being put in a position that you're not ready for. We just need people to say, if this is our greatest mission field, maybe I don't have a passport. Maybe I can't get on a plane. But I could take an hour or two a week and I could invest in the next generation, whether it's a student, fourth grader, a preschooler. Every one of you, when you walk out these doors, is going to participate in the invitation, and here it is. You're going to be handed a little card. It looks like this. There's a QR code on the back. When you click on it, it's going to come up with a way for you to get connected to our children or our student ministry. Grandpa, don't say this is for the young people. College student, don't say this is all those parents' problem. Everybody can do something. And through it, we will communicate to the world and more importantly, to our most impressionable souls. Every child's a gift from God. And every church that loves children should make children a priority by loving and leading the next generation. The invitation is for you to go serve our children. Take a card as you make your way out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, before any person in this room or watching online ever sat here, Miss Brown taught me the Bible on Sunday nights. I remember she'd give out taffy if we sat still. Some nights I didn't get taffy, but I knew she loved me. Miss Annette taught my Sunday school for several years. So did Miss Jean and Miss Ruby and Miss Joyce, Mr. Bill. Those people are long gone. Many of them are already with you. Those little classrooms are still there, rural church. What you did in my life is multiplied by every man and woman in this room that grew up in and around church folk that loved them. Lord, help us to not get too big for our britches. I could care less how nice the indoor playground is if we just drop our kids off to get away from them and we don't ever drop back and serve someone else's children. There's not a kid down that hallway this morning that's going to remember the 63,000 foot, foot, $9 million children's wing. They're going to remember who loved them, who hugged them, who told them about Christ. So, Lord, I pray for some obedience coming out of this morning. 
We love you. Thank you for your grace in our lives. When we were orphans, you made us your children. It is in your name that we dismiss and we pray. And God's people said, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.